Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. So our reading is from Exodus chapter 3, reading from verses 1 through to 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that you would uh, break into our lives this morning and speak to us powerfully. And we pray that, that we might know you and know you personally and know you well. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, do take a seat, and uh, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, uh, you'll find that on page 59 and through to 60 in the church Bibles. Exodus chapter 3. 
It's now a good 42 years since the publication of uh, this book, uh, Knowing God, by Jim Packer. Uh, it was, you can see, you might not be able to see that quite, but it was published back in the days when pretty much every Christian paperback had a sunset on the front uh, that long ago. But over the years, it has become something of a, a publishing sensation, in Christian circles at least, perhaps not by worldly standards, but still pr- quite impressive. It's been republished seven times and um, I think sold over a million copies in the United States alone. And it's been hugely influential too. I was told by someone who interviewed ordination candidates in Australia that uh, when he asked the question in those interviews, what Christian book has most shaped or influenced you? For years and years, almost everyone in those interviews said, uh, this book, Knowing God, by Jim Packer. Uh, Now, 42 years on, it's still worth reading. Um, It's a little hard, I think, uh, to see what all the fuss is all about. Uh, And yet it clearly struck a chord at the time. It clearly struck a chord at the time. And imagine that was because back in the dark days of the 1970s, uh, the possibility of knowing God for many people was actually quite refreshing and revolutionary. You know, so people did their religious studies at school, perhaps even went to church regularly. Uh, but the God presented to them was a distant, unknowable, dusty, elusive mystery. So the rediscovery that because of Jesus Christ, we might actually get to know him personally, well, that must have come as a, a breath of fresh air in that setting. And it'll always be a very, very potent idea. This idea of knowing God. We might wonder, you know, could that, could that be possible? You know, knowing the real, actual God. The God who made the universe and shapes our very existence. Knowing him personally. Is that possible? On good terms. What would that be like? Surely if that were possible, that would change everything. Surely that would bring a new hope into our broken lives. A rescue from the mess that we're in. Is that possible? Well, if that's an idea or a question which resonates with you, you've, uh, of course, come to the right place. And especially this term, I think, because this term is the term where we're working our way through the Bible book of Exodus. And as we've already begun to see, the book of Exodus is really all about knowing God. It's about the people of Israel knowing their Lord. Uh, Except that so far, I guess, if you've been coming along uh, for the first few weeks, it hasn't yet been very personal. We've seen the Lord at work uh, powerfully in many ways, uh, but it's very much work behind the scenes, um, behind a veil in a hidden way. And it's really only in in our passage this morning in Exodus chapter 3 that he reveals himself personally. And that really is what I hope we're going to see this morning, that knowing God, the Lord, is possible, personally. Uh, What's more powerful rescue does indeed come if you know the Lord, thanks to his initiative, because of his promises, fulfilled in his time, and on his terms, and according to his name and character. And that's really just what we're going to look at this morning in three parts Uh, Knowing God and his rescue from sin and death is possible, uh, verses 1 to 5 of our our passage, thanks to his initiative, his holy initiative, Uh, verses 6 to 12, because of his promises fulfilled in his time, on all his terms, 
and then 13 to 15 according to his name and character. So then first, knowing God, knowing the Lord and his rescue is possible. Verses 1 to 5. Thanks to his initiative. Thanks to his initiative. And uh, we do begin these verses, I think, reminded of uh, Moses' weakness and failure. That's how we start the chapter. That's kind of spilling over from the story we were looking at last time. But then the Lord takes the initiative. The Lord intervenes and quite suddenly everything changes. So in verse 1 here, Moses is, I think, in a miserable state. And uh, he's left his people back in Israel also in a miserable state. Uh, You can see that um, his condition there in the first verse of our chapter. Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There was so much promise and hope, I guess, built up in this character, Moses. But here he is, out in the desert, out with a bunch of sheep. It's pretty much the end point of his own failed attempt at an exodus. You know, he did, back in Egypt, try to bring justice for his oppressed people. But it went badly wrong for him, and he had to run away. And here we find him, 40 years later, an old man, apparently with no future. It is striking, though, the kind of path that he's taken. Uh, He has managed to follow the path we know the Lord is going to take him again later in the true exodus. You know, he's escaped from Egypt, he's crossed the desert, and he does make it here to the mountain of the Lord, but he's on his own. How many people does he have with him? Well, none. Just in passing, uh, let me say that it's no accident that his father-in-law, Jethro, gets a mention here in verse 1. He, I guess, represents someone here who doesn't know the Lord outside the people of God. Uh, But do remember that name. We're going to come back to this character, Jethro, later in the story. But for the moment, the focus is on Moses. Miserable, might have been Moses, who might have been leader of his people, the Hebrews, but is now leading, well, just some sheep. But then the Lord takes the initiative. The Lord intervenes. Look at verse two. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And so the Lord intervenes, and does so, of course, in an appropriately dramatic fashion, as flames of fire. And I suppose we've come to a place here on the mountain where we can see it has to be this way. Uh, Where can help for God's people come from? There's no hope or help in Egypt. There's no hope or help to be found in this sad old shepherd miles away from home. Uh, We've looked for all the possible kinds of solutions And when we've done that, where can hope and help come from? Well, it must come from elsewhere, from outside that situation. And if the problem is something that infects all of creation deeply, well, the solution must come from even outside that. It must be, to use the Bible language, a holy solution. That's what the the word holy means, separate, different Separate from the mess and mayhem of the world. It must come from outside, even from God himself. So the Lord is intervening. But having said that, we might well wonder in 
this desperate situation whether someone who appears as fire, as holy fire, is really going to help. Is that in any way comforting? Certainly when this happens later, again in the book of Exodus, when the people arrive at this same mountain after their rescue from Egypt, they don't find the fire in any way comforting. We're going to be told then that to, to, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. And as they look on that consuming fire, they're going to be terrified, and rightly so. And it's likewise here, not at first perhaps. Moses is at first just a bit curious about the flames. And the Lord God, you'll notice, has to warn him not to come any closer He's, he's, he's not dressed appropriately to approach the white-hot holiness of the Lord. The place on where he's standing is, verse 5, holy ground. But then the terror does hit Moses eventually when he suddenly realizes with whom he's talking. Then finally he is afraid. Look at the end of verse 6. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So it's rather like this. So imagine yourself momentarily or, or, or accidentally uh, locked in a fireworks factory. Um, I hope this never happens to you, but I just imagine that it does. But then help arrives in the form of the fire brigade. And at first you're relieved, uh, a little curious about how they're going to break in through these solid steel doors. Uh, but then they start to cut through. And they're cutting through using you know, oxyacetylene torches. And there's uh, flames coming through. Um, into a very, of course, very highly flammable and explosive situation. Um, at first, you were quite pleased that you were being rescued. Now you're not quite so sure. Now it seems rather dangerous. I guess that's pretty much how Moses must have, must have felt when he realised whom he was speaking to on the mountain. I suppose it's something we all have to face up to if we ever cry out to God. I think most people cry out to God at in some way, at some time in their lives. And uh, presumably when we're doing that, we're, we're wanting a response. We're wanting his presence. But I wonder myself when I cry out like that, have I really thought that through? Do I want the Lord to make good on uh, what I want? Do I really know whom I'm dealing with? Am I ready to encounter him? But then you'll also notice that the remarkable thing about the flames here in Exodus chapter 3 is that they don't consume. They don't burn things up. In other words, the title that someone has put in our Bibles at the, at the head of the chapter there is in fact uh, not right, is it? As Moses, Moses notices, the bush doesn't burn up. Moses finds that rather curious. Verse 3, I'll go over and see this strange sight where the bush does not burn up. So if you've got a a pen with you this morning, you might like to insert a little correction in the heading there. Moses and the not burning bush. So that in itself is remarkable, but even more remarkable given that this is holy ground. Moses isn't consumed. He isn't burned up. How is that? How can he dare approach the white hot holiness of the Lord and survive? You know, that's a really, really good question. 
Now, the only hint of an answer we get here, really, is in the way that the Lord first introduces himself, which takes us to our next verses. Verses 6 to 12. Powerful rescue is possible if you know the Lord, not only because he takes the initiative, a holy initiative, bringing a solution from outside the problem, but powerful rescue is possible also, verses 6 to 12, because of his promises fulfilled in his time and on his terms, because of his promises. You see, the God that Moses encounters here in the flames is the promise-making God who will make good on his promises, which, of course, means in his time and on his terms. Take a look with me how the Lord first introduces himself in verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is the God we encountered right at the very end of chapter 2 of Exodus, the one who remembers his covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This points us back to the promises that he made them, promises running all the way through the book of Genesis, promises of blessing. They come to Abraham's line and family, building up into a great nation, then spilling out into all the peoples on earth. This is the promise-making God, the one who promises blessing. And that is why, that is why, even even though the Lord comes here as fire, and we would normally expect him to burn up anything unholy or impure, this time nothing gets consumed. Because, of course, he has promised blessing, not destruction. So the bush is safe. Moses is safe. What's more, God's people will be safe. And you can see the Lord's determination here to rescue them and get them to safety. If you turn over and let me read from verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. I have come down to rescue them, says the Lord. But then, of course, if this rescue is all his initiative and his promise, it shouldn't surprise us here if it happens in his time and on his terms. It happens here in his time. He waits, as we've noticed already, over 400 years before rescuing his people. They had to look that far back into their history to to when the promises were first made. It's an extraordinarily long length of time, isn't it? It's like us looking back into the 1600s. Now, we could perhaps work out some of the reasons for that delay. But more generally in the scriptures, we're not often not given a reason for the Lord's timing. You know, when he will save, when he will bring justice. So we might well find ourselves crying out with the people, much as they've been crying out here in the book of Exodus or across the ages, how long, O Lord? Or we might cry out today, your kingdom come, or come, Lord Jesus. We're desperate for the time to come. But in the end, we just have to trust that the Lord will get the timing exactly right. So the rescue comes in his time. It also comes on his terms. You can see that here too. 
Look at how the Lord describes the people in verse 7. He says, they are my people, my people. He chose them. It's not the other way around. And you'll notice also that the rescue happens through God's chosen servant, Moses. That's the deal. That's what God says to Moses in verse 10. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses himself is understandably a little bit worried about that. Who am I, he says, to do that? And we might wonder about that too, given his, his track record. But this is the Lord's plan, backed up by the Lord's power and authority. He may well have been just a few moments before, just a sad old shepherd. And years, years before that even, you know, as he tried to bring justice for his people, they did, I think, probably understandably say to him, well, who do you think you are? Who made you? ruler and judge over us. But this is the point where things change. This is the point where he suddenly becomes somebody. Not because of who he is, but only because of the Lord. Because the Lord is sending him. Because the Lord appoints him as leader. And only because the Lord is with him. And the Lord is going to show that he's behind everything that Moses is doing. And everything, by, by doing what Moses was unable to do before, bringing the people out of Egypt, bringing them to this mountain. Now, when Moses does actually get to go to the people in the chapters to come, what we're going to see is that they find all this stuff about it only being on God's terms. They find it really hard to take, and they continue to find it really hard to take. And And I think we find it really hard too, don't we? We find it a hard thing. To begin with, we might think about the possibility of rescue from sin and death and the possibility of knowing God. Most of us will think, great, that sounds really good. That's worth investigating. But then the reality perhaps hits home afterwards and we start to think through some of the implications for our lives. Perhaps some of the things that need to change. Perhaps some of the things we need to face. And we might well hesitate and say to ourselves, well, does that mean, or whatever it might mean? The American pastor Tim Keller says that um, when he tells people in New York about knowing God through Jesus Christ, very often, after a while, people will come back and bombard him with questions about what that's going to mean for their lives. Questions, conditions. Does knowing God mean that I'm going to have to give up such and such? Does knowing God mean I'm going to have to start doing X or Y? And Tim Keller says that he used to try and give full answers to those questions, you know, going through all of the kind of detailed Christian ethics on those uh, issues of how to live. But then he stopped doing that because he realized that if uh, people are still thinking that way, laying down conditions, wondering what they can get away with, they really, you know, just haven't quite got it yet. They haven't got it yet. Only when we can say, whatever, whatever it means for me, Lord, only when we can say that has the penny finally dropped. But I know from my own experience that we can take our struggles with following God's way into the Christian life. I remember just after becoming a Christian, um, the moment of being told that the expectation really was meeting with Christians every Sunday. And I said, what? 
What? Once a week? That's outrageous. What about my weekends? What about my lion? My second lion, that is. And that was a really quite hard thing to get my head around to start with. And at some point in our, in our Christian lives, we will all struggle with this, doing things the Lord's way. We will all wonder whether it really can be right. And I suppose, especially in the midst of suffering, we might think that. We think, why? Lord, surely the timing on this is all wrong. This must be some sort of mistake. You know, why can't some of that blessing that you've promised in the future, why can't, it, you, can't, why can't you bring some of that forward now into this situation? Have you not seen the struggle that I'm going through? You know, the struggle my family is going through? The struggle I'm facing in my marriage with health and relationships and life in general? At those moments, we are basically thinking, we're basically questioning the Lord. I don't, I don't really, Lord, think much of your way. And so we fight against it. We fight against the way of the Lord. I wonder if you've ever thought about the vast number of religions in the world uh, this way, and how this in some way explains why there are quite so many. I think probably each one of them stands as a, as a testimony to the human tendency to, to want to do our relationship with God our way, on our terms, according to our likes and dislikes. And because our terms sort of vary enormously from person to person, we get a whole load of different religions springing up like that. But of course that same tendency can creep into our circles too, can creep into circles calling themselves Christian, we might find ourselves saying to the Lord's, we don't like your way. We don't want your ethics. We'll bring our own ethics if, if that's okay. It's what we're used to. It's what we're comfortable with. Perhaps more seriously, we might find people starting to take issue with God's means of rescue. It's something he insists on in this passage, isn't it? That it must come through his chosen and appointed servant. For God's people back then, that was Moses. He was the focus of it. For us, uh, part of the much bigger rescue from sin and death uh, that spreads out to the whole world, that means um, the ultimate servant of the Lord, focused on him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this really is serious, isn't it? This really is, can't be negotiated away because it turns out that knowing God depends utterly on him and his death and resurrection and him alone. In the end, that's the only reason why the, Moses was able to approach the Lord the way he did. It's the only reason why we can approach the Holy Lord as well. But take all of that away, take him away, and there is no rescue. There is no safety in his presence. There is no hope. So if we do find ourselves taking issue with God's way, we have to conclude we really haven't quite got it yet. We do need to face up to the reality that we're in. We are really in no position to bargain with God. We are in no position to bargain with him. But we can trust him. We can trust that his way is the right way, the good way, the best way. Even if we can't quite see how. But it is also the only way. It's on his terms, 
or not at all. And nowhere is this clearer than in the final verses of our passage this morning. Powerful rescue is possible. Knowing God is possible, but, verses 13 through to 15, according to his name and character, according to his name and character. It is possible, knowing the Lord, knowing his blessing, even knowing him personally by name, as we'll see in just a moment, but even this is very much on his terms. His name, in fact, is something which asserts his independence, his self-sufficiency, his authority. But I think we'll also see wonderfully, it's also a name which embodies his enduring faithfulness. This is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. Uh, Let me read how his name is revealed to Moses. From verse 13, God said to, uh, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. <laughs> this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And we have to say this is so much unlike the naming of any other God. The other gods of the nations, of course, have names chosen for them. Uh, You might imagine that happening back in Egypt at this very time some marketing committee meeting of the official priesthood discussing the design and naming of a new god. And here it is, says one of them, uncovering an artist's impression on a flip chart. You might imagine a long pause. Looks like a dog, says the chief priest. What's his name? Is it Rex? Rover? We were thinking, we were thinking, Anubis. Anubis. Sounds good. What does Anubis do? Anubis is the god of embalming. Embalming? Are dogs especially good at embalming? Oh, right. Go ahead then. Add him to the list. But the true god of the universe is not going to be so constrained or pinned down or domesticated by giving him a name. He provides his own name. Actual name is there in verse 15. It appears in our Bibles as, as the word Lord, the name Lord, in capital letters. Uh, in the original, it's just four letters corresponding to uh, Y, H, W, and H in our al- alphabet. And uh, if we insert the uh, vowels from, from another word and jiggle things around a bit, uh, we get the word or name Yahweh. Yahweh. Uh, they did this back in the, in the 16th century as well, and they came up with the name Jehovah. If you're wondering where that name comes from, uh, that's where it comes from. So in other words, whenever you come across that word Lord in the Bible in capitals, that is standing in for the personal name of God, his covenant name, Yahweh. But what you can see here is that the personal name of God is 
therefore very closely associated with the other claims that uh, the Lord is making here. I am who I am, he says. And I am, he says, in verse 14. Indeed, the name even looks and sounds a little bit like I am. It's, uh, it is indeed quite mysterious, perhaps suggesting that the Lord is in many ways indescribable, incomparable. He just is. He can't be pinned down, constrained or domesticated. His name asserts his authority over us rather than the other way around. But there's more to this than the Lord just asserting or declaring his authority. This name is also wonderful because this name contains a promise. And it's a promise which links past, present, and future. The name is linked to that idea, I am who I am. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. It's a promise about promises. The Lord is saying this to Moses, the promise making God, I was to Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, or that promise making God, I am also to you, Moses. That links him to the past. I am with you now, he says to Moses. That is the present experience of knowing the Lord. And I will be with you, keeping those promises into the future. Now, where do we fit into all of this? After all, the promises that the Lord made to Abraham relate to us too. Eventually, they they spill out into all the peoples of the earth. Does that mean that we too can get to know God by, by name? By this name, perhaps? Well, actually, we can, we, can, we can go one better. Because of the gospel, because of the gospel, we get adopted as children of God, which means that we get to call him Father. That is remarkable, isn't it? And because of the gospel, he reaches out to relate to us even more personally and intimately and directly than he did to Moses. He relates in the flesh. And for that encounter, we use the name Jesus. Jesus, who saves us from our sins. Jesus, who is also Emmanuel, God with us. With us, even more with us than he was with Moses here in this passage. Jesus, as he describes himself, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That is who we get to know through the gospel. So I do commend to you uh, Jim Packer's book, Knowing God, um, especially if you've never read it before, or perhaps you read it years and years ago. Uh, do have a go at reading it again. At least you can be reminded what all the fuss was all about and gauge one of the most influential Christian books of the last century. But even more than that, even more than that, I commend to you the the big idea there. This idea, this extraordinary idea of knowing God, knowing his blessing and his rescue. A, A possibility that we've seen tantalizingly opened up for us in this amazing passage 
in Exodus chapter 3. It's a possibility made deep and real and permanent for us through the Lord Jesus, who allows us to approach the holy presence of the Lord. But whether you're encountering that uh, possibility for the very first time, or whether you know it wonderfully already, remember, right from the beginning, it's on his terms, not ours. It's thanks to his initiative. It's because of his promises, fulfilled in his time, on his terms, according to his name and character. Let's pray that we might know this wonderful Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you that you have broken through into history, into the mess and mayhem of our world, a place from which we need rescuing desperately, rescuing from sin and death. We thank you that most ultimately you have done that through the Lord Jesus uh, for our sakes and that through him we can get to know you personally. We pray that we would always remember that it is to be on your terms. Humble us, therefore, Lord, to accept that and live with that to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.